0: across America and around the world. Famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack, on location at the Naples Winter Wine Festival.
1: And welcome to a special edition of the show as we take you behind the scenes at America's number one wine auction, This is volume two from our weekend at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, where they raised almost $16 million for children in need. And as I mentioned in our last episode, with all due respect to so many great wine auctions across America, this is the wine event of the year. It attracts the top vintners and wineries from all around the world. And in this episode, we'll visit with Olivier Krug, who shares his passion for champagne. Hey, we share that same passion. Always enjoy the bubbles. Also, Veronique Druin will join us, one of the world's leading women in wine. What an amazing career she's had spanning Burgundy to the Dundee Hills of Oregon. First, though, the name Ferragamo is synonymous with fine Italian fashion. I've been a big fan for almost 30 years. So when I learned that Salvatore Ferragamo, grandson of the famous cobbler, would be in Naples to share his wines from Tuscany, we couldn't pass up the opportunity. Salvatore could have followed in his father's footsteps and those of his grandmother. As you may know, it was actually Mrs. Ferragamo, who with the help of her six children built the footwear and fashion empire we see today. Pretty impressive. Now, sadly, she passed away last fall at 96 years old after a truly amazing life. And after meeting Salvatore, I really think that her spirit lives on in her grandson. He decided to take a totally different path and lead the family's venture into the wine industry. They purchased a small village in Tuscany and restored it and the surrounding hillsides. It's called Il Borro. And I'll let
2: Salvatore Ferragamo pick up the story from there. Absolutely, absolutely. It was a lot of work. The property was in a state of complete disrepair when we bought it uh, now 25 years ago, back in 1993. And almost twenty six, and uh, and I have to say it was uh, quite challenging because you see you're restoring a beautiful property, but you're working with old buildings, uh, and it's always much more challenging when you're starting from from an old building than starting from scratch. And um, and then we also had to put the land back to work. And so the, the 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 project has been. Challenging, but at the same time also very, very rewarding and exciting. And I've seen a rebirth of this wonderful property over the years. And with my father and the whole family, it's a place that we are actually very proud of and enjoy tremendously. Today we are a relay and Chateau hotel in this beautiful medieval hamlet, and. Uh, a farm that produces wonderful wines, olive oil, honey, vegetables, chicken, eggs, beef, many, many different agricultural products, and all conducted in an organic fashion and sustainable. So that's that's a fantastic project. I'm very proud to be part of this. Did you have to
1: do some convincing uh, to get him to, to get behind this, or was this... Uh Was there something, emotional connection here? I mean, talk about the process because, again, it wasn't something that you had to do at that time.
2: No, no, I didn't have to to do it. Actually, it's an interesting uh, concept. My... My fa- I am one of six. My father is one of six, and my grandfather was number 11 out of 14. So you can imagine we are quite a large family. I'm one of 70 cousins. And so we have uh, um, some strict guidelines uh, for succession. We need to have, um, you know, ensure that we get the best talent. And I, I did all the pre requirements, university degree, work experience, uh, uh, MBA, and so on. I, and I have an identical twin brother. We did all of that, uh, those experiences together, and I could have joined the fashion side, but I actually chose against it. I thought, why don't I do something completely different? I start from from scratch, and uh, transform this beautiful property and add in a way to the family and to all that the family has done, versus you know following and just covering a role within uh, Ferragamo. So I, I actually was very fortunate that, that I could do this project and that, uh, you know, the family up accepted uh, my role in this. I worked very, very hard. I find the wine business fabulous, really exciting. You're working with nature, but also incredibly competitive. So this is actually keeps me incredibly busy, but also excited. So
1: when we think of Ferragamo in, in the U.S., I mean, it's like royalty. And so I sit with you here, and but you're this down-to-earth... <laughs> nice guy. I mean,
2: you, you know, how do you stay grounded? That's incredibly kind of you to say, to describe us like this. But, uh, you know, we are very passionate for what we do. I think it's, a, it's a, something which is passed on from generations to generation to be passionate uh, and, uh, and do what you want and do what you like and, to, and then, you know, uh, time will tell and the products and everything that we do and our services uh, will show. So I, I believe in the, in the integrity of uh, what we do and the experience that we deliver.
1: Il Borro, uh, talk about the name and, and what that means.
2: Well, Il Borro... Uh, I always joke because when I come to America you have a strong uh, Spanish influence and it's very close to burro which is the donkey it's not it's (laughs) borro with an O (laughs) important to make that distinction and the word uh, borro is actually from the Tuscan dialect uh, which means canyon and this is actually describes the kind of soil that we have uh, in this part of Tuscany because the borro lies in the Valdarno Valley which is this valley just south of Florence between Florence and the town of Arezzo and we've, we've actually over the millions of years experienced a strong land erosion which has left this kind of canyons and this uh, so the, the, the borro are these canyons and in the middle of one of these canyons you have a little hill on which the medieval village of Vilborro sits. So it's also the name of the geographical name of this beautiful medieval hamlet of Vilborro, which we have completely restored. And today it's a, a thousand-year-old medieval hamlet, really in Chateau Hotel. So 20 years now you've been producing wine, right? 1999 was the first
1: vintage. So 20 years plus into this project, are you... I don't want to say satisfied, because I know you're always striving to do things better, organic, etc., biodynamic, um, but do you look back now and say, you know, wow, we, we did it?
2: Right? Yes, I, you know, I don't like to, to think that we did it. I think it's always, uh, you can never truly relax today. I think you always have to have a vigilant eye. The wine industry is, has become... Uh, ever so dynamic and continuously changing but we are happy for what we have accomplished so far I recognize that we are relatively a young uh, wine company because the very first uh, vintage was the 1999 and of course uh, we are in a a market arena where there is a century year year old uh, properties so we are you know trying to to find uh, our own identity in a beautiful part of Tuscany that has an incredible uh, potential
1: Let's talk about the wines now. I know uh, Sangiovese is uh, very popular, but uh, you, you do a, a wide variety of wines. And that rosé, I have not tasted it, but I hear that's pretty special as well.
2: No, no, absolutely, absolutely. The rosé is wonderful. Well, our, our philosophy of growing wine is actually a two-fold uh, philosophy. It's a philosophy where we actually believe in terroir because of the diversity of soils I mentioned before. We actually uh, study the soil and plant a different type of of vines that, that work best in the different soils that we have on the property and at the same time is also a question of sustainability which i believe is a strong uh, and important uh, concept that we need to really focus not only as a winery but uh, globally speaking and so everything is also farmed organically it's something which can be done actually the wines are as a result uh, even more interesting because of the uh, root structure that really goes uh, deeper, searching for that uh, minerality in the deeper layers of the soil, making the wines uh, very, very interesting. So uh, yes, we do have many different wines. You mentioned about our rosé. We have uh, what we call the sparkling uh, rosé, which is made uh, from our early harvest uh, Sangiovese grapes, which uh, actually rest. Uh, um, it's a Champagne-style rosé that rests on the yeast for five months, so sixty months. On the yeast, uh, really it is incredibly, it's a wonderful floral, fruit-forward, creamy, crusted bread uh, flavor that comes to the palate. Of course, it's very limited. We only produce 5,000 bottles, but a wonderful uh, rosé from Tuscany. And uh, talk about your... Do you have a flagship wine? I mean, would you call the Sangiovese the flagship or... Uh, well, I think the flagship wine actually would be the Il Borro Toscano uh, variety. It's the very first wine uh, we made. And it's it's more of an IGT uh, blended wine, which is a blend of Merlot, Cabernet, Syrah, and Petit Verdot. So this is actually a very interesting uh, wine that uh, in a way describes uh, the full variety of of the different type of soils that we have on the property. However, we are in Tuscany and uh, we own a part of the estate that goes up into the mountains where you find that rocky soil. And so we actually dedicated that part of the estate for the traditional grape variety of Tuscany, which is the Sangiovese. And we actually have two expressions of Sangiovese. One is the Policena, which is uh, Sangiovese that is aged in uh, oak. It's uh, actually 12 months in oak, second or third passage, oak barrique. And then we also have um, a sister wine, which is a very new project to the Policena, which is the same grapes from the same uh, vineyard, but instead of aging it in oak we're going back to the origins of wine we go back 8000 years back and wine actually had no oak but it was aged in clay pots so this uh, it's interesting because this wine is called petruna and actually it has no oak aging, only aging in clay pot. So you actually see the difference of the, the two. It's actually very interesting. I love the complexity of the oak but also the uh, micro that you get uh, from the clay pot really enhances the fruit forwardness of, uh, of this wine. So it's interesting. The clay pots, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, to, to have you know, kind of gone old school, right? I'm going to go back and do that. Uh, that's that's got to be quite a project. Absolutely, I, th- I think you know today it's uh, the wine industry. It has become incredibly dynamic, and on a property like Il Borro, we really enjoy looking for new project and and make uh, discoveries. We can do this because we are in a part of Tuscany which doesn't have any major DOC, so we are basically uh, work on an IGT basis. And, uh, and so we did. As I said, let's, uh, let's go back to the origins of wine. 8,000 years ago, how did they make wine? They had no barrique. And so we, we are doing it with the clay pots, and it's really interesting. So welcome to Naples. What's your impression of this event? Oh, this is a fantastic event. I have been very fortunate to be invited to this event uh, several times. I, I, th- I believe the last, the first time I was here was uh, uh, 10 years ago. I have participated to five uh, Naples Winter Wine Festivals. It is a fantastic opportunity to give back uh, to the children. The children's uh, children really do not have a voice and it's fantastic that we can help and support a wonderful cause. And at the same time, it's an event uh, where you have really the, the world, the top quality of the world, quality of wine. So it is uh, also an event that is interesting as a wine producer to be part of. Uh, just for the incredible, uh, we had a wonderful dinner last night uh, with, with uh, Le Coster Tournel, which is a fantastic, actually one of the, my favorite uh, uh, estates in France. Uh, and uh, you know, incredible that uh, I could be at such a prestigious event uh, with them and for such a great cause. Well, thanks for
1: joining us. We'll see you in Tuscany. I want to come and do a full show at, at Il Borro. That'd be uh, a lot of fun, and maybe have the family come along and uh, spend some time there. It just it looks absolutely spectacular.
2: It really is a fantastic property. I, I hope you can really make it, because I'm going to hold you to it, because it's uh, a... <laughs> It's difficult for me sometimes to describe it where there's so many things going on. You have the Reliant Chateau in a medieval village, the winery, the olive oil, everything. So you have to see it in person yeah. to really understand it and grasp uh, the full extent of Il Boro. I look forward to that.
1: And so do we, very much so. Already planning that trip to Tuscany for this fall. And looking forward to that very much, I want to thank Salvatore Ferragamo for taking time on what was a very busy day for all of us in Naples. <music>
0: This is Vintage with the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack, on location at the Naples Winter Wine Festival.
1: Well, no doubt there's a strong bond between Burgundy and Oregon. Many of Oregon's top winemakers spent time in the French countryside learning from the best in the business. And we have many people to thank for the Oregon wines that we drink today, including the Druin family and Veronique Druin, whose father first came to Oregon Way back in 1961, uh, Veronique followed in 1986. She worked the harvest that year with the Letts, the Castiles, and our dear friend David Adelsheim. And then a year later, the Druins bought land on a hillside in the Dundee Hills and planted their first vineyard. And I asked Veronique what her father saw in Oregon way back in the early 1960s.
3: Well, I think the f- the thing that struck him was the shape of the valley, so when he was in Oregon in sixty one I think that's the year he was there to promote his wines from Burgundy, where I guess there were already people loving wine in Oregon but not producing wine and He told me that when he arrived in the valley in the Willamette Valley, he said, "This is incredible how similar to Burgundy the shape of this valley is you know he's facing slope and and so he thought probably a good place to grow grapes but that's it and then he went back to Burgundy and it's only later on you know with David Lat planting and him tasting wine and uh, being surprised how wonderful these pinots were and surprised there was in Paris, the Goemio, the famous uh, Paris tasting where the focus was on Cabernet, but Pinot was also tasted there. And then some of the Pinot from Oregon did really well, including David Letts wine. And so I think the first time my father's reaction was like, was this tasting really well organized? And he reorganized the tasting in Burgundy with Pinot Noir only, including those from Oregon that did well. And again, the Oregon wine from David did so well. So he said, this is not just luck. It's it's serious. It's, it's a very good place for Pino yeah. and so the the rest of the the rest of the history is 1986 I'm studying inology sure. I had the chance to go to Bordeaux, being from Burgundy. It was nice to know the other very famous region from France. And then I thought I should improve my English, and I would love to have experience in the, I wouldn't say the Pacific Northwest at the time. It was California on my mind, because I didn't know Oregon was even producing wine. And being close friends with uh, the the Mandavis, my dad said, uh, well, I asked him, I said, do you think I could go there for an internship? And he said, oh, I'm sure they would take you. But you should go to Oregon. And then I ask why. So I ask the same questions, you just asked me. And so in 1986, here I am, coming for four months in Oregon and helping the few pioneers making wine uh, and learning and becoming friends. And then they realized if somebody from Burgundy would make wine in Oregon... It would be nice for the state. So they tried to encourage my father, Robert, how, how about you make wine here? And he said, I would love to, but the problem is your harvest is too close to my harvest in Burgundy. I won't have the time to be here and be in Burgundy. And so, of course, I would be understood. But one year later, the property that we purchased was for sale, and it was just a land... Uh, on the hill with trees no vineyard no winery but they said you should come and have a look at this place so in July of 87 here we are together we come to Oregon it's the first year of uh, IPNC International Pinot Noir celebration and he was a guest speaker so he said okay let's go and have a look and we go up the hill and we fell in love with the place and then of course did a little bit of research with the soil which obviously is the huge difference with Burgundy where, where I come from and um, said, let's try. I believe into this place. And so 30 years ago, it was a big thing. It was uh, very courageous, I think, and sort of visionary to think ahead that this region, it wouldn't be easy, and it has not been easy. Nobody knew Oregon, so you really had to travel a lot with the wine, show it to the people, put the wine on the table in front of the sommelier, please taste the wine, and then once people would taste the wine, they would be absolutely uh, charmed by... And so we were not the only one doing that, of course. The Ponzi's and the Adelsheim and the Letts. And uh, so it has been a very uh, lovely working community to try and promote the region. It has been successful, I would say.
1: And you mentioned uh, several of our mutual friends, uh, the Ponzi's, who we're great friends with, um, David Adelsheim. Talk about the reception when you first got to Oregon, because Oregon is such a close-knit wine community,
3: what was that like? Oh, as you said, it's a very close community, and we were the strangers... Welcome as friends. And I don't think we would have stayed if we didn't feel the welcome and the encouragement. I remember the time the governor invited my father and he said, we'll help you. And so they really helped us to set up the business there. It was a big investment. It was, uh, not easy. It was far. It's a different type of, uh, you know, law system. And everyone was so helpful. And for me, I remember when I started to make the wine, Remember, it's 1988 and it's, you can't even find a wine thief or bang barrels. You have to buy them. I mean, like we still do, but, but equipment or lab, all of this didn't exist over there. And so everyone would say, if you need any help, we'll be there. And so, and I think it has been a mutual exchange because when my father would be there and going to their vineyards or winery, taste the wine, he would say, if they needed advice, it said, "That's what I would do, or this is how we do this." Not necessarily that it will work here, but so there's a lot. There's been a lot of exchange of of knowledge, but certainly, yes, it was a wonderful welcome, and still is.
1: You are one of the leading women in all of the world of wine, and I know you're very humble and shy and you don't you don't advertise that but what's it been like over the last 25 30 years uh, to see the growth of women in the wine industry we have some amazing i mean Lynn Pennerash, right down the road from you and in you know the Dundee Hills and then uh, Yamhill Carlton and those areas you've seen some great young female winemakers and industry leaders haven't you
3: I do, and I would say in the U.S. it has been uh, for quite some time. You have amazing women that have been uh, making wine for in California for sure for a long time. Burgundy is more recent. When I was studying, I was the only girl. When I was little, I didn't think I would do this because it was only boys in the cellar, in the vineyard. Um, I had three brothers, so I thought, this is what they will do, and I'm going to do something else. And then, well, in the end, I'm the winemaker, and my oldest brother is the vineyard manager. But it has been wonderful to see more women being... uh, involved and collaboratively working together.
1: And the Oregon industry, the growth in Oregon, even the last 10 to 15 years, I mean, it's been remarkable, hasn't it?
3: It has been incredible and and still growing. When we started, there were 35 wineries, so this is 88, and today there's as of today, 769, so it's huge. I think it's, it, it took time, but finally people realized from not just domestically, but outside, there's, there's a lot of people looking at Oregon, uh, in a different way than they were 30 years ago. Like, okay, it's a very promising place. It's a, uh, definitely really good place to make great wines. And there's still space; it's still affordable, and, and I'm hoping that will be kind of managed because it would be sad to see all of the beautiful forest disappear. So there need to be some kind of control, I think. Otherwise, it, it will be; it could be a little bit of chaos. And uh, yeah.
1: So the next chapter in Oregon, uh, we obviously Pinot Noir is the flagship. Mm-hmm. But the Chardonnay from Oregon, as you know, is absolutely spectacular. And we're starting to see more um, buzz around that, that wine and that varietal from Oregon, aren't we?
3: We are, yes, and for the the main reason I think is the clone that is being used is very good, and that was not the case in the past. There's no secret if you don't have the right plant, ugh, we can't do miracles. the one is going to be so so, but now those clones have been selected and came from Burgundy. We know them, we know they do well, even though the soil is different, and of course they'll express in the grapes, but it took time because of course you can't take um you know clone and just plant it. you may bring. Disease and so that has been managed in a very well way, but it it was a slow process. But now everybody decides it. And what is uh, the the fun part is to try and define where those vines are going to do best. So, there's of course every AVA, everyone is is, uh, trying. And we can see the Iola materials is really good on, on our property. The first vintage was 94. We didn't sell the wine, but it's not, we kept it. And it's nice to see that 1994 Chardonnay, it's, it's an old wine for Oregon, or even for even for Burgundy would be old. It's still delicious. So there's potential for make good wine on the short term, but also on the long term.
1: Oh, yeah. That Oregon Chardonnay is showing so well. It is not your grandma's chardonnay for those of you that have migrated away from that varietal you know i don't rate wines uh, but i will tell you these oregon chardonnays are absolutely amazing I want to thank veronique for sharing her time and her story at the naples winter wine festival
0: this is vintage with the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack, on location at the Naples Winter Wine Festival.
1: Well, since the mid-1800s, the Krug family has produced some of the world's finest champagnes, and now it's sixth-generation leader Olivier Krug who's leading this prestigious brand. Uh, This was the first time we had met Although I must be honest, I've been enjoying his family's work for many years now. So it was nice to put the name with the face.
4: You're right, the Krug name is a family name. It all started in 1843 with my great-great-great-grandfather, Joseph Krug, who was uh, from German origin. He was working for one of the biggest champagne houses, but one day he decided to create a type of champagne that did not exist. He decided to create a champagne that would offer the fullest expression of champagne. In other words, that would ask all the instruments of champagne to play together every year. And not only he did, but he's done it every year because what you have in your glass today is the 166 edition of Crew Grand Cuvée, which means this is the 166th time in a row that we have recreated the dream of the founder.
1: So taking this business, I know that, I mean, I've read the stories, uh, you know, you opened up new markets, right? You've, uh, you've been successful. Japan comes to mind, right? Uh, the explosive growth. And you are not just sitting back. Right. You this is a very labor intensive role for you um, to be in the restaurants all around the world, off the beaten path, looking at, you know, what's on the list, what's not on the list sometimes. Right. And growing this brand.
4: Right. I'm glad you say that because some of my friends following me on Instagram thinks I'm taking holidays all over the world every day. And it's true that my life is about pleasure because champagne is about pleasure. It's about meeting Krug lovers, uh, sharing, having fun, opening uh, older bottles. We even have parties called Krug, Bring Your Own Krug, which are parties where people come with their own collectible Krug. But it's all about work, the sense of details, and we have... um uh, the same sense of details on the market uh, as the one we have to recreate every year, uh, uh, Krug.
1: So, you get to have some fun, that's what you're saying, right? I mean, you enjoy what you do, obviously.
4: I do enjoy what I do, and this is fascinating because I never talk about my customers or my clientele. I talk about the audience of Krug, and these people who love Krug, they have called themselves Krug lovers. Mm-hmm.
1: You have a very loyal audience, and so what's it like to connect with them, personally, because I know you you meet the people who love you and love your brand and love your champagne at events like this. What's that experience like for you?
4: This is um, fascinating. This is rewarding. Of course, one of my missions is to bring back these love messages back to uh, the winemaking team in Champagne because they need to know that uh, the Champagne they create uh, is loved. And what I like the most is those people who tell me spontaneously every single day the first time they had Krug. You know, I don't even start talking and say, oh, Monsieur Krug, Monsieur Krug, let me tell you who introduced me to Krug. Let me tell you what I felt the first time I had Krug. And this is great because one doesn't need to be a specialist, an expert to get Krug. Krug speaks to your senses. It is exactly like music. You know, the first time you listen to a music, you don't need to be a musician to say, oh, what is this music? I remember my daughter, when she was seven, listening for the first time to a classical music, asking me, dad, why are there so many instruments playing? today. And this is exactly the same. The first time you have a glass of Krug, you people look at me and say, Olivier, how can a champagne give so much in one glass? And I tell them, because that was the dream of my great, great, great grandfather.
1: It's a beautiful way to describe it. Uh, so what are you most proud of? I mean, when you stop and think about the history of Krug,
4: the, the current Krug, what are you most proud of? I don't, know if it is, uh, I don't know if it is about pride, but I am so joyful to see that uh, Krug is extremely contemporary. People talk about tradition, but for me, tradition is what is ahead of you. Tradition is not the past. Tradition is not a museum. Tradition is a life, very lively. This is what I've been doing for almost 30 years, and this is what now I am trying to transmit to a new generation of Krug lovers all over the world.
1: Let's talk about harvest in 2018, another warm harvest. Um, Maybe give us a recap.
4: 2018 was um, probably the biggest, some people say the best harvest ever in Champagne it was huge because we had an outstanding summer following a winter where we got a lot of rain so there is not a day in Champagne during that extremely hot summer where the vineyard lacked of water, so it was still growing, 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 growing we had one of the biggest yield ever despite we are not looking for big yields in Champagne it was outstanding not one single disease it was beautiful, now I'm only talking about the grapes now, but we have to talk about the wine. So the wine is what you make from the grapes. And so far, we are not that excited with the wines. They are beautiful, but um, they are still a bit rich. And you know that in Champagne, we love finesse, elegance, because Champagne needs to be aged a long time and remain fresh and elegant.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? How, you, I mean, no matter how long you've been doing it, 30 plus years, uh, seemingly may have been a Perfect year in a vineyard, and yet you still don 't know right what you may i mean obviously you 're going to have quality product, but i mean there 's no predictable formula with what you do
4: there is no formula every year we have to recreate. Krug uh, Grand Cuvee, a new edition of Grand Cuvee. We start from scratch, and in order to do that, we rely on Joseph Krug's vision. When in his diary in the 1840s, he wrote, as the very, very first sentence, "One cannot make a good wine without using good grapes come from good elements." So he was obsessed not only by the quality but by the individuality. So at Krug, we are, I believe, the only champagne house that vinifies plot by plot. So if you have three plots in the same village from the same Cepage, we will make three different wines and all of them will have their own individuality and personality. And for us, that is very, very important to have this individuality.
1: That is a good point. And I think for people who enjoy champagne, they may not realize that, as you just mentioned, one vineyard right next to another may be completely different.
4: Absolutely, people don't know that They think that champagne is very simple It's made from three types of grapes Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier But actually there are more than 300 villages 15,000 growers And up to Almost 280,000 different plots. So in theory, if we could vinify each plot individually, we could have 280,000 different base wines. So we don't go that far because some plots are very, very tiny. But basically, this is very, very important to follow the individuality of the plot. At Krug, every year we vinify around 250 wines. We will test all of them twice, which means that we are going to test 500 times. We is a testing committee, six people. So we will only know the quality of the harvest once we have 3,000 testing notes for these only 250 wines.
1: Well, such a rich history uh, going back many generations. Let's talk about the future. Where do you see the future? What are you excited about in the future for Krug?
4: I, I see the future is 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 booming, it's blossoming, it is outstanding. I love this uh, new generation coming to um, the world of uh, fine uh, wine and champagne. And I love them because they are not geeky. So they didn't enter with their brain, but they enter with their heart, with their open uh, minds. Sometimes it might be a bit frustrating the first time when they, they at the end of the testing, they, they ask you, what grape are you asking? Actually, they know nothing, but they connect to their senses. They are extremely bright. Extremely open-minded. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Krug decided to go into digital uh, six or seven years ago. We are the only champagne house to have a Krug ID, a little number on each bottle, allowing everyone to connect through the Krug apply to the whole story of each bottle. We are extremely uh, active on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram as a house, but also myself as an individual. So it's very, very key for us to connect with this new generation every day.
1: And boy are they doing that 147,000 followers on Instagram Not bad for a champagne house Founded back in 1843 Thanks to Olivier for joining us And thanks to everyone involved In the Naples Winter Wine Festival The ladies at Sunshine Sacks Nice work on the event And all of our friends in Naples and around the country, congratulations on another incredible event raising almost $16 million for the kids in Collier County, Florida. That's all for now. More next time on Vintage.
0: Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.